What is the content of the eternal life that we possess? Well, First John has been teaching us that to have eternal life means, first and foremost, that there is no transgression against your name. This is Timeless Truth Today, and I'm your host, Matt Williams. Welcome to part six of Living the Assured Life, a study in 1 John from Pastor Paul Twiss. Pastor's text is 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 21. If you're new to this eight-part series, this is the first of three letters from the Apostle John to first-century churches planted throughout the known world. As Jesus was about to ascend to his Father, our Savior had commanded his apostles to go out in Holy Spirit power, baptizing and teaching the gospel both near and far. John's letter was literally written to some of the converts he had personally discipled many years prior. As was often the case, however, over time, some of these churches had been invaded by false teachers, which Pastor Paul had referred to earlier when he said, Having been taught, seemingly for some time, teaching that was contrary to the foundational teaching of the gospel, they had been robbed of their joy, robbed of their confidence in Christ. Here now is part six of Living the Assured Life. Please turn to 1 John 5, and we are wrapping up this series, verses 13 through to 21. We've got a lot of text to work through tonight, so let's see if we can do it in the time we have. First uh, John five thirteen and following. The word reads, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this evening. So we come to the end of this series then, and uh, incidentally, I was speaking to my brother this week about this series. He's just 13 months older than I am. Uh, We grew up, it was like having a, a twin brother. Our ages are so close, and 
we used to get into all kinds of mischief. We gave our mum a very hard time, and then the Lord graciously saved us uh, one after another, very close together. And he's now a pastor back home in the UK, in the Cambridge area. So we'll talk often about what we're preaching. And one thing we agreed upon, as we spoke about wrapping up a, a book, is that you never have the feeling of having mastered that book. Uh, it's not that you come to the end thinking, I've got First John. I can check it off and, and move on. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, really, for me, coming towards the end of a book, and I think this is always the case, you actually think, maybe I'm starting to understand what this book is about. And that's not anything to do with the clarity or lack of clarity of the word, but it has everything to do with the profundity of the word, the, the depth and the richness of the theology in just these five chapters. And there is a sense almost that you want to go back to the beginning and start over. Now I feel like I'm in a position to study First John. But life goes on, and, and so must we, and, and that sense of incompleteness is, is almost appropriate uh, as we conclude this evening, because John seems to anticipate that as his readers finish this book, there would still be a question, specifically a question of what now? What do we do now? You've, you've given us the roadmap for assurance. Uh, what do we do with that now? Or as I'm phrasing the question tonight, how is it that we can go on living the assured life? If we've been faithful to do all that John has instructed us to do, if God has led us to that position of assurance, what do we do after having studied this book? It's a question worth pondering. Think about the first congregation to whom this letter was written. I've wondered this week, what was their spiritual state one year after receiving this letter? What did that church look like five years down the road? Were they abounding? Were they carrying on along the path of assurance and joy? Or had they taken a misstep? Was the word of God not having an ongoing effect in them? And really, it just boils down to whether they understand what it is that they're to do next. We can take in all of John's theology over and over and over again, but we have to be able to apply it, and consistently so, on a daily basis. You see, the gap between us and that first church is really not that great in this sense. We are in the same position, and that is the position of what will we do with John's theology. And the answer simply is that John takes us back to the basics. John directs us in his conclusion of this letter back to the absolute basics of the Christian life. The answer to the question of what do I do now is that you go back to the basics. I think it's fair to say that mastery in any field is obtained by a mastery of the basics. You can think about any athlete, any sports team, anyone that you can see that has obtained excellence in their field, what sets them apart from everyone else? And the answer usually is that they have mastered the basics. They are exceptional at the basics, more so than anybody else. And, and John is eager that his readers would keep going, living the assured life. 
that as he sends them off, as it were, perhaps never having further interaction with them, he's eager that they would continue to abound in assurance and joy. And in order to do that, he directs them back to the basics of the Christian life. Specifically, at least in three areas, and that is he directs them to have a renewed consideration of the gospel, to think afresh in a continuous way upon the gospel by which they have been saved, understanding that as they give their mind and their heart to the truth of Jesus' death on the cross as their salvation, they would only ever grow in their understanding of who they are, and that would lead them along that path of assurance. Secondly, he exhorts them to be persistent in prayer, one of the most foundational responsibilities that we have as believers to approach the Lord and ask of him. And then finally, he exhorts them to pursue Christ. The same theology that he's been giving to these readers from beginning to end, he concludes his letter with a firm exhortation to pursue Christ, knowing that as we take in more of the Savior, so we won't go wrong. And so they're the basics that we're led through this evening. In these few verses at the end of the letter, John answers the question of how we may live the assured life, and the answer is we go back to the basics. Starting in verse 13, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, I've been arguing that this one verse constitutes the purpose statement of the entire letter. There are several times throughout these five chapters where John says, I write these things so that, but it seems like this last time in chapter five is the overarching purpose statement. And the reason I say that is because we know that at the time John was writing, it was common to leave your, your stated goal until the very end of the letter. This is one of the few letters we have in the New Testament where it seems like there is a purpose clearly given to us. It's the same as in John's gospel. Think about how John in his gospel leaves until chapter 20, his clear purpose statement. I write these things so that you might believe that Jesus was the son of God and in believing in him, you would have eternal life. In the same way here, he seems to leave his stated purpose until the very end and the purpose is that we would have, we would know that we have eternal life, that is that we would have assurance. Now, there is something interesting about the way in which John writes this, and sadly, it doesn't come through in the English translation. John says, literally in the original, I write these things to the ones believing in the name of the Son of God that you may know that life you have eternal. John says, so that you may know that life you have eternal. Now, word order in the Greek language is not determinative. You can move the words around and it still makes a perfect sentence. But what's interesting is that John, who speaks so much about eternal life, at no other time separates the two words. All through his gospel, all through 1 John, he always says eternal life. Just in this one place at the end of the letter, he separates them. He says, in order that you might know that life you have eternal. And commentators observe this and say the reason seems to be that that is enough of an inflection to cause you to sit up and consider afresh what it is John is saying. 
The last thing that John wants is for you to, to fall asleep, to doze off at the end of the letter. And so he introduces just a slight inflection to prompt you, to alert you, to think again on the truth of the matter, namely that you have eternal life. It would be like me telling you a fairy tale. And at the end, rather than saying, and they all lived happily ever after, which is the the ending that you've heard a thousand times and you'd be prone to shut off at that point, rather than that, I would say, happily ever after, they all lived. Now, the meaning's the same, the sense is the same, but that slight inflection is just enough to prompt you to consider what exactly does that mean? Life, you have eternal. You have eternal life. That's what John has been explaining to us through these five chapters, and it seems as he wraps up his letter with his purpose statement, he wants us to consider afresh exactly what that means. What is the content of the eternal life that we possess? Well, first John has been teaching us that to have eternal life means, first and foremost, that there is no transgression against your name. That your name sits in the book of life, and beside it there is not one record of any transgression against a holy God. Though you have committed 10,000 of them, The truth of the matter is there is not one record of sin against your name. The record is clean because Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. More than that, there is a word against your name. More than that, there is something now against your name. It is one word and the word is righteous. Not because you are, but because Jesus is and was and he died for you. And that has been credited to you now. So now God looks on you. He sees no sin. And he accounts you as righteous. He looks at you and says, see how righteous is this one. Because of the death of my son. More than that, to have eternal life means that that holy, just God is now your loving heavenly father. Abounding in a rightful wrath against humanity. He has now brought you into his family and he instructs you to call him father. He has adopted you into his family. To have eternal life means that you have a loving heavenly father. More than that, it means that to have eternal life, you have an advocate. An advocate beside the father's right hand. He pleads for you every hour of every day. While we sit here this evening, Jesus Christ the righteous pleads your case before the Father. And when you sin, he doesn't bring a case that says, you know, he didn't mean to do that. I don't think he's going to do it again. That's not the case that Jesus pleads on your behalf. He pleads the case, I died for him. And on that basis, wipe it clean. Wipe the offense away. Forgive him again. And every single time the father hears the perfect plea and he agrees. He is in complete agreement with the son. And so communion with God is available in an ongoing way because of Christ's death on the cross. More than that, to have eternal life means that you are on a steadfast path that ends with you looking into the eyes of Jesus. 
To be one that has eternal life means that in a very short space of time, you will stand before the one who died for you. And you will look into his eyes. And you will see the scars on his hands that were for you. And you will sing praises. Much the same as we've been singing tonight, the difference will be that you will sing them to his face. Do you think about that? That really soon you will be praising Jesus whilst looking into his eyes? There are few thoughts more encouraging than the, in the Christian life than that one truth. And if in that moment, if we are able to take our eyes off Jesus, for a moment and look around us, we will see no sin. And if we are able in that moment to pause for some introspection, if that's even possible, we will see no sin. I think we will look radically different because we will have been made perfect and First John has been teaching us that to have eternal life, that means that between now and that day, which is coming very soon, there are expectations that rest upon our shoulders. God is calling us to live a life of holiness that befits the gospel, that makes his gospel known, that rings true with our confession of faith. But it's not burdensome because his commands are light. And the reason they're light is because the Spirit dwells within us. And we have a new heart, and so we rejoice to obey God, and we live out a life that puts His glory on display. And we do so all the way home. And how we could keep on going, rehearsing the truths that John gives us in these five chapters concerning what it means to have eternal life. Now, notice John is not trying to give you those realities. John has written a letter so that you might know that you have those realities. John is, is desiring to impress upon you the certainty that you do indeed have those truths. You are in possession of them right now. The most privileged people on planet Earth sit here this evening. They sit in local churches not because of the, the, the amount of money in their account, not because of the job they have, not because of any worldly possessions, but because they have eternal life. And if only we would consider afresh every day the truth of the gospel and who we are in Christ. It's not an overstatement to say that so many of our problems come about because we are so flippant in our thinking. So quickly we wander away from the truth of who we are in Christ. We forget. And whether you have been walking with Jesus for five years or for 50 years, there is an inclination in your flesh to believe otherwise. There is an inclination within all of us to believe that which is in contradiction to the gospel. We are so prone to believe that we don't have God's favor, that he is frowning upon us and we have to please him somehow. 
And if I just do this and this and this, then he might be pleased with me. He delights in you right now. This moment, he is delighting in you because of Christ's death on the cross. He loves you with the fullness of his love all the time. We are so prone to believe that God reluctantly blesses us, that he is frowning upon us and he is reluctantly blessing us. Oh, how he wants to bless you. Oh, how he wants to shower his richest gifts upon you. How he delights in your life. How he is at work in your life. We are so prone to believe that our circumstances on the ground each and every day, however desperate they may be, are disconnected from God's sovereign, loving grace. We may affirm the truths with our mouths in song and to others, but how quickly we are, we are prone to separate the two, that my circumstances can't possibly be a manifestation of God's goodness to me. He is sovereign and he is wise and he loves you. And he is working out his very best for you each and every day. I've heard our pastor being asked the question a number of times how to better read the Bible. If we have a Q&A here on a Sunday night, sometimes people will get up and say, how would, how would you advise me to go about reading the Bible? And you may have heard his answer. He, he normally says, well, this is what worked for me. And I love the answer. He says, I took First John and I read it, the whole thing, every day for one month. By the end of which I knew the letter and I moved on to my next book. And I, I love the answer because it is a great way to study the Bible and, and there's a lot to be said for zooming out and, and trying to get your arms around one book. But I really like it because he mentions this letter and for a Christian, there are few places better to go than this letter to refresh your heart to the truth of the gospel, to train your mind to better understand who you are as a Christian. Perhaps the greatest discovery for me in studying this book is simply that John is answering the question of assurance, not in the way that we would ask it. How can I know that I'm saved is the way that we're prone to ask the question. He's not interested in that question, or at least not as narrow a question. Part of which is knowing how you have come to salvation, but there's so much more. John says, let me tell you what it means to abide in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And oh, how rich is that answer. You're listening to Timeless Truth Today. The Apostle John by now had himself been ridiculed and persecuted, and he understood why these first century Christians needed encouragement and assurances in their salvation. Nothing has changed. Even when we've been walking with Christ for decades, we can lose our assurance. Pastor Paul just said it this way, quote, It's not an overstatement to say that so many of our problems come about because we are so flippant in our thinking, so quickly to wander away from the truth of who we are in Christ, end quote. Let's set our attention on the Apostle's words of encouragement in chapter 5, verse 4, quote, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
end quote. Timeless Truth Today is a teaching ministry of Pastor Paul Twiss, a listener-supported outreach of Bethany Bible Church in Thousand Oaks, California. If you've missed any part of this series or would like to re-listen to what you've heard, go to timelesstruthtoday.org. On the homepage, click Broadcasts, where you'll be able to choose from a free archive of messages from Pastor Paul. And you know, if this program has had a positive impact on your walk with Jesus, will you consider making a financial gift to this outreach ministry? Your support makes you a part of reaching thousands of souls with the good news of Jesus. On the homepage of TimelessTruthToday.org, simply select Donate to make your gift of any size. Tomorrow, it's part seven in our series, Living the Assured Life. Hope you can join us then. I'm Matt Williams. Thank you for listening to Timeless Truth Today.